to again just give a shout out to Erina and Michael for just your faithful leading of this congregation. I do not take any opportunity to preach uh, for granted, and I'm just really grateful for your um, prayerful attention. I also wanted to quickly say I am neurodivergent and have a hard time sort of, I can be overstimulated, so I probably won't be able to pay much attention to the chat, so please uh, forgive me if I'm not sort of being responsive, as uh, maybe you might be used to. Um, if you will pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our rock, redeemer, nurturer, and friend. Amen. The story of Daniel's three friends. We all know this story, and y'all definitely know it because you just heard a sermon on it a few weeks ago. Maybe it was one of your favorite stories growing up in Sunday school as a child. It certainly was one of mine. Daniel's three best friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, underdogs, they face an evil villain who taunts them, attacks their gods, and then later sets fire to them. But somehow, they burst forth from the superheated blazing furnace, unscratched and unharmed, vindicated. It reads like a fairy tale, a superhero comic. But when we encounter the story now, no longer believing in fairy tale endings. The story strikes us as too easy, naive, and false. We've all grown up and have tasted the bitterness of reality. And we know that it is only in fairy tales that the good so easily wins over evil. So we find ourselves at a loss, unsure what to do with a story that is simply too good to be true. The story, however, was written and circulated precisely to lend hope to people like us who are weary, who look around the world with despair as we see unrelenting corruption, power, greed, material excess, inequity and injustice pervade all aspects of our common life on this earth. While the story was set in the time of the Babylonian exile of the Jewish peoples, it was actually written when Jewish people faced terrible persecution and oppression at the hands of a tyrannical and ar arrogant ruler, Antiochus IV, who was not unlike Nebuchadnezzar and who attempted to destroy and obliterate Jewish faith and their culture and their community in the second century BCE. I think it absolutely matters that the story of hope and abiding power and presence of God who was was written by the faithful followers of Yahweh, not in times of abundance and flourishing, but precisely in times of the most intense trauma and persecution. This story was forged in their own furnace of suffering and oppression. The story of the courage and faithfulness of young people who resisted the temptations and lures of the empire and its demands for uniformity and control at the point of death well, the story was shared during times of intense trial and trauma when many young people were indeed murdered for their faith without any angel or divine figure to rescue them. The story was invoked, shared, lifted up, 
encouraging people to remain faithful to God no matter what in the darkest of times. Both Jews and Christians understand the story of three young persons in the fiery furnace is one that challenges them to hold on to their faith and worship their God no matter what happens and no matter what pressures are brought upon them to abandon their faith and the ways of their lives and fall at the shrine of the empire. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up an enormous golden statue that is 90 feet high and nine feet wide. And when the band plays, everyone is to fall down on their knees and bow to it. All of the king's officials, long list of court officer, officers listed by ranks and titles in the previous verses, they all fall and worship too, lest they be stripped of their little power and be cast out into the fires themselves. But these three young persons refuse, making the king furious. He gives them one more chance because, you know, the king has invested a lot in the re-education of these young people. Remember, he had kidnapped them from their Jewish communities, shipped them off to boarding schools where they were baptized in the names of the king's tongue and educated and reared and subjected to the imperial way of life. Mindful that these are some of the finest re-educated young persons who have governing powers, the king taunts, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Why don't you stop yakking about and praying to this loser God of yours? Your God is nothing. Your reality is here in Babylon and I'm your king. I'm your God. Bow to me. Who will deliver you out of my hands? But these youths, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, refuse to bow, remaining faithful to the God of their ancestors and their community. Who was God to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah that they were willing to face even death? If we think they refused to bow down to the king because they knew for certain that God was gonna swoop down and rescue them, then we really are making the story into a fairy tale. They did not know how things were going to turn out. And what could have been their last words, they said, even if God does not, we want you to know, king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. These youths knew that death was most likely their doom and prepared to become nothing but ashes. It's so important to recognize that these boys are just like us, human, and probably afraid of the very agonizing death that they were about to face. And if we want to paint a picture of these boys as superheroes who knew for certain that God was going to come in and deliver them, that we are not being true to what they faced. It's important to hear this, otherwise we turn it into a fairy tale, a story fit only for little kids as we want to protect them and shield them for the bitterness of reality as long as possible. Remember that these stories were shared by Jewish communities when their faith, their community, and their way of life was under intense attack, under violent and totalizing persecution. They didn't share these stories because they expected God's God to miraculously intervene to save them. Because they knew from their own lived experience, perhaps better than anyone, that not all stories end as happily as it did for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
We are now living in a post-Holocaust era where millions of Jews perished in furnaces to a God who seemed silent and distant, unwilling to demonstrate deliverance of God's people. As a Korean immigrant woman, I can't help but think of the independence movements and as untold number of my ancestors perished at the hands of the Japanese imperialists who tyrannically colonized my motherland and attempted to eradicate my culture. This story always reminded me of the Tianli massacre where in one small Korean village, the Japanese soldiers gathered the village people, including children into a church building, hammered the doors and windows shut and set fire to the church. Maybe the soldiers had heard the story of Daniel's three friends because they made sure to gather around the raging fire, rifles drawn, ready to shoot anyone if someone miraculously broke through the fire through the locked doors and windows. Dr. Frank Schofield, a Canadian vet and missionary to Korea at the time, passed by Chamley Village, captured the burning village people trapped in this church on camera, and later described what he saw as an unquenchable fire. It was a raging, fiery furnace with no miracle. All of its victims incinerated, turned to ash. In the context of the US, a militaristic empire built on stolen land and blood of the indigenous and black persons and continuously expanding and living, leaving ruin and devastation in the wake through its militaristic and capitalistic expansion. I can't help but think of how many black churches and villages and whole cities were bombed, burnt down and incinerated into ashes by raging white mob motivated by evil and hatred. This story reminds me always of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. 16th Street Baptist Church had become a rallying point for civil rights activities and on one early Sunday morning, members of the KKK planted a box of dynamite with a time delay under the steps of the church at about 10, 22 a.m. As 26 children were walking into the basement to hear a sermon, a sermon on love, the bomb exploded instantly killing four little girls, forever traumatizing and injuring more than 20 children and their families and communities. Children burned and perished under the vengeful fire of a white Christian supremacist, ableist evil and wrath. Today, we look around and see that we are all trapped in this brutal, extractive, ableist capitalist system that rapes and pillages the earth to the point that our ocean is on fire, our rivers are burning, and lethal floods and disasters are striking even the most protected and privileged of this world. The wildfire season on our side of the nation reminds us of the apocalypse each year, doesn't it? And just open the news and you will be besieged with tragedies and travesties of all scales in all corners of the world as people seem hell-bent on destroying each other in the name of power, money, wealth, and glory. In the face of such calamity and with the fires of hell raging all around us, how are we to have any faith? In the presence of Nebuchadnezzars and such tyrannical and evil kings and leaders who seem to mock and taunt us, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What have we to say? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?
The asker of this very question attempts at an answer at the end of the story. The astonished Nebuchadnezzar orders his entire kingdom to honor the God of these three boys when he sees them emerge unscathed. Of course, he doesn't care that his own officers who were tending the fire died as collateral damage to his pointless and stupid antic. When the boys do emerge unharmed from the fire, Nebuchadnezzar commends them and calls them the servants of the most high God. He states that no other God is able to deliver in this way. For Nebuchadnezzar's, God is God only if God miraculously delivers and demonstrates God's mighty strength and miracles and powers. While there is truth to what he says, because God is indeed powerful and mighty to save, as these young folks proclaimed and as the story emphasizes, Nebuchadnezzar can only glimpse a part of who God is. And he quickly forgets what his eyes had seen for a moment of a figure that was with the boys in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar, before summoning the boys out, had noticed a fourth figure. Who's that? Didn't we just throw three men into the fire? But I see four, and the fourth has the appearance of a god. He is never given any explanation of who this fourth figure is. But those who know the story of Israel and their journey with God, no explanation is needed. Or perhaps no explanation can fully capture the mystery of a god who enters the fires with her own people. This is the presence of God, presence of God, Emmanuel, who is with us, even in the midst of our suffering in our fiery furnace. And it is this image of God of solidarity and presence, God who was deeply present in suffering and injustice that Nebuchadnezzar so quickly forgot. When the boys exit the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't give any more thought to this mysterious fourth figure. This image of a God who is standing presently with you through your sufferings and trials, Nebuchadnezzar has no need for. Doesn't fit his idea of what a God should be. Strong, supernatural, powerful, explosive in demonstrations of potency. Nebuchadnezzar has no need for a God who suffers with us in the fire as he will definitely forego a God who dies the most shameful and painful death, a lynching on the cross at the hands of jeers and mockers Nebuchadnezzar's incarnate. But for you and me today, for those countless victims of injustice who perished in the fire, for those who are enduring their fiery furnaces now and yet still cling on to their faith, it is this mystery that sustains and endures. It is the mystery of God who not only can deliver, but chooses to suffer with us, who comes to where we are and makes home with us even in the depths of hell. Perhaps this mystery is what you might hold on to from the story and why the story was forged in the first place. It is the mystery of a God who I believe was present at each and every death of God's beloved children, God's beloved creations. That as the Jewish people were led through the fiery furnace of the Holocaust, God was present with them. That as the villagers of Jamli burned in an unquestionable, unquenchable fire, they were not alone but held in the embrace of their loving creator who burned with them. That when the four little girls, Addie Mae, Denise, Carol, and Cynthia were bombed and killed near the basement of a church where they were marching in to hear the word of God, that moment, the word that is God embraced and held them near, 
there was a mysterious figure, a God with us who remained deeply present. What enabled Daniel's friends to stand firm in their faith and refuse to bow and kneel at the altars of powers and principalities of an empire that by its very structure requires a fiery furnace and living sacrifices of persons, creatures, and land that seek to defy its realm of control and uniformity? What enabled and continues to enable faithful and courageous leaders who are resisting the ways of the empire, risking their life for the sake of justice and peace for others. And what will enable us, as we too navigate living under the violence and shadow of an American empire and a global world order that will be the death of us all? We are all witnesses to how human connections, eco-diversity, and the well-being of our earth is under imminent and violent threat by a hell of our own making. Perhaps we feel numb or are in despair or are terrified as we watch the present global world order continue to demand living sacrifices of minoritized and marginalized bodies, cultures, and lands to satisfy the unquenchable fiery furnace that fuels still the white supremacist settler colonial death machine. What I hope will enable us to stand firm in our fight and in our resistance is to remember that we have a God who is with us, who calls us still from the flames and demands a response. And that the saints who have gone before us, our ancestors of faith, whether it be Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Malcolm X, or Fannie Lou Hamer, or Toni Morrison, or Yu Guan Sun, they also surround us with their prophetic courage and power. My hope is that we are not left alone in the struggle to live lives of resistance and, dign and dignity by ourselves. My great-great-grandfather is a celebrated resistance fighter and organizer in Korea who fought against the early stages of Japanese settler colonialism. In one of the peasantizings that sought justice and flourishing for the farming poor, he was shot in the leg was captured and later hanged to death in a prison that became notorious and known as the Death Chamber of Freedom because of the sheer number of executions of resistant leaders under the brutal legacy of Japanese imperialism in my motherland. My great-great-grandfather was part of the upper caste and could have kept his peace with the empire and bowed to the god of power that took hold of his nation. When asked why he kept fighting an unwinnable fight, he responded, we have to resist even if we cannot win. Our end is not victory, but resistance. I have lived under the shadow of his words for a long time now. In the eyes of people like Nebuchadnezzar, who only know the destructive language of power and violence, he was a loser, a failure. He died in prison, hanged to death. But his resistance, like the resistance of Daniel's friends, like the resistance of the late John Lewis or civil rights readers, leaders, like the resistance of people every day rising up around the world to say no to injustice and ruthless power and death-dealing ways of the empire, 
all of their resistance contribute to a choir of living witness that sing a song of justice that gives us the courage to stand in our own context here to resist, fight back, and say no. Friends, these are trying, turbulent, tumultuous times. We need each other more than ever. We need to hold on to God more than ever. We need to resist the ways of the empire and the way it has such a deep hold on each of our psyches more than ever. And friends, we cannot do this work alone. And I thank God that we have a God who promises to go with us and that we have the gift of each other and the gift of our ancestors of faith who calls us and equips us to get into good trouble, necessary trouble to help redeem the soul of America as in late John Lewis's words. Holding on to the God who refuses to leave us alone, who follows us and calls us from within the depths of unquenchable fire. Holding hands with one another because suffering and pain are lessened when shared. Relying on the courage of our ancestors of faith and justice whose presence all around us. May we all have the courage to go on resisting, preaching with more than just our words, but by our lives, protesting, praying, and also partying, because we have to enjoy the gift of fellowship and mutually encouraging each other and sustaining for the good fight ahead of us, for the divine work of getting into good trouble, of resisting and standing up to the ways of the empire. Amen.